Jesus is alive. Welcome to Easter 2020. I think we would all agree that this Easter is unlike any Easter we have ever experienced. We've never had an Easter celebration where we weren't gathered together celebrating the risen Jesus. I often open Easter messages by declaring he is risen and and then I get to hear you, my faith family, respond by saying he is risen indeed. And we can do that virtually as we did a few moments ago, but it's not really the same. I think we're all experiencing a lot more mixed emotions this Easter than usual. We're celebrating this Easter with more anxiety than usual, maybe with more sorrow than usual, and definitely with more tears than usual. If you've watched the news, you've seen multiple media personalities crying as they report on the coronavirus crisis. I've read several articles that talk about the grief that many of us are experiencing. Grief as we contemplate the lives that have been lost, the people that will die, all the lost jobs, the depleted savings, the postponed weddings, all the isolation and loneliness. This may surprise you, but our reality today connects us a lot more closely to the first Easter than you might imagine. The first Easter had a lot of anxiety and sorrow and tears. And that reality from back then up until today connects us directly to our scripture passage this morning. We're in part six of a seven-week series called I Am, Jesus in His Own Words. And today's story is found in John 11 where Jesus makes an audacious claim about himself that we'll get to in just a moment. But first, I want to point you to a small but very significant detail in this story that so speaks to us today. It's in John 11, verse 35, and this verse is well known as the shortest verse in all the Bible. Just two words. It says, Jesus wept. Jesus, God's Son, creator of all things, the savior of the world, the one who holds all power in his hand, very light, very life. He is weeping. Why? I ran across an article this week that asked the question, is it okay for a grown man to cry in public? This article's answer was, well, it all depends. There are good reasons to cry and there are bad reasons. And the article gave examples in each category. One example of a good reason was Dwight D. Eisenhower, general of the Allied forces in World War II, before Normandy began, they were about to storm the beaches on D-Day, and he was giving his men a pep talk. And he knows the probable casualty rate is 70%. As he sends them off, there are tears in his eyes. A good reason for a grown man to cry. Another example was Anderson Cooper, well-known anchor for CNN. In 2005, he was sent to New Orleans in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, and he spent four days there just seeing, witnessing all the horrible devastation. And finally, he was interviewing some desperate evacuees, and as the camera rolled, so did the tears down his face. Even in the world of sports, sometimes it's okay to cry. Maybe you remember this, back in 2006, Tiger Woods lost his dad to cancer, and his dad had been his best friend, his dad had been his mentor, his inspiration, and in the wake of this, Tiger's golf game fell apart. But then he entered the British Open, 
and he said that he was going to play this tournament for his dad, and he won. As he sank the final putt, he embraced his caddy, and he sobbed. Everyone thought that this was a good reason for a grown man to cry. According to the article, there are also some bad reasons. One of them took place in 1952. Richard Nixon was running for vice president of the United States, and the press had started accusing him of receiving some illegal campaign contributions. And so Nixon went on TV, and he defended his honesty. And we all know how honest he was. He said he hadn't taken any illegal contributions, but, but there was one gift that he was holding on to, a cocker spaniel puppy named Checkers that his daughters had bonded with. And he said he was not going to give that dog back. And then he burst into tears. And the press had a field day. Historians still refer to this as Nixon's Checkers speech. More recently, uh, the internet has decided, apparently it's not okay for Michael Jordan to cry. Maybe you've seen this mocking meme. It's everywhere. Well, here's a good question. Did Jesus have a good reason to cry? We get some answers as we look at Jesus' I am statement in John 11. And today on Easter Sunday, we are looking at this claim that Jesus makes where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. If you'd like to read it with me out loud there in your home, I'd, I'd encourage you to do that. Maybe you're by yourself or with your family, but go ahead and read with me out loud. You can follow it on the screen. This is from John 11, verses 25 and 26. Let's read it together. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus made this claim when he arrived at the home of a very dear friend, Lazarus, who had died. If your Bible is open, you might drop down to verses 34 and following. It says, where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus wept, and he had good reason to cry. Here, here are a couple of reasons we know it was appropriate for Jesus to cry on this occasion. First of all, weeping was customary. It was expected in Jesus' uh, culture when a family member died. According to the Talmud, which was the collected sayings of ancient Jewish rabbis, if a loved one died, you were required to mourn for 30 days. In fact, for the first three days, you were to wail out loud. The next seven days, you didn't have to cry, but you were required to continue lamenting. And then for the rest of that month, you were not to shave or, or take a shower, and that put tears in everyone's eyes. So the fact that Jesus wept at Lazarus' graveside, that was not a surprise. It's what grown men did in that culture. But then second, Jesus' tears were also appropriate because Lazarus was a very close friend. You see what the bystanders say in verse 36. See how he loved him. And so everyone expected Jesus to cry considering the depths of his loss. He would never see his friend again, right? But that couldn't be the reason Jesus cried. Why? Well, John is telling us, and you may already know the story, Jesus had arrived in Lazarus' hometown of Bethany for the very purpose of raising Lazarus from the dead. 
Jesus knew what he was about to do. He knew he was about to bring Lazarus back to life, and this would be the biggest miracle of Jesus' earthly ministry. Many people who had not believed in Jesus yet, when they saw Lazarus brought back from the dead, they put their faith in Jesus as the Christ. This really rankled the religious leaders of the day. Uh, We read after this, they, they set out to kill Jesus. You can check that out at the end of chapter 11. Lazarus was raised from the dead in the winter, and by the beginning of the spring, Jesus had been crucified. So if Jesus is standing at Lazarus' graveside, knowing he's about to do this incredible miracle, why did he cry? And what does this have to do with his I am statement? I am the resurrection and the life. Today we're going to look at two aspects of that statement. And the first one is this. The first one tells us why Jesus cried. You can write this down if you're taking notes. It's the terrible tyranny of death. I use this word tyranny to describe death because tyranny means oppressive power. Death controls our lives. Death commandeers our destinies. It's terrible. And you would think that is a pretty obvious observation, but the truth is, in our culture today in general, death has kind of gotten a facelift. More and more voices are out there claiming, you know, we've misjudged death. Death isn't really that terrible. Death is just, you know, part of the circle of life. Can you hear Elton John singing the Lion King theme song right now? This idea is everywhere. I actually Googled it and saw that I got over 5 billion hits. Death is just a natural part of the circle of life. There's this nine-minute animation video that came up, and in this video, this guy gets hit by a car, and he's in a coma at a hospital, and while he's there, he has this vision of a playground with these twins, a brother and a sister. They're on a teeter-totter, and they represent life and death, and they teach this guy, we're two sides of the same coin. Doesn't matter which side comes up. Death is really life. Life is really death. And you see this, and you go, what? According to this video, death is just a gift of nature. It's your opportunity to be released from the concerns of the world. It's it's no big deal. Well, we've seen a lot of death in recent days. And I believe the way that we instinctively recoil from this coronavirus uh, pandemic shows that we do not believe that, not deep down. You know, as a pastor for over 30 years, I have sat by bedsides as people have died, sometimes in great agony. I've watched cancer bring death. I've sat with people who lost loved ones in terrible accidents, and I want to tell you, death is a terrible thing. I still believe that. I also believe that people who say they think death is just a natural part of life, something to be welcomed with calm, Well, I'm skeptical that they would say that if they were walking out of a doctor's office where they'd just been told they have three months to live. Jesus was struck by the terrible tyranny of death, and that's why he wept. Go back to John 11. This is a lengthy story, and and you would do well to, to walk through it in more depth. Read it, you know, all later today. But let me just take you through a few parts of it. We'll begin in verse 1, where John tells us, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And we we know that Jesus was very close to this family. 
Verse 3 tells us, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And here's how Jesus responds to these messengers the sisters send. Verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, can we pause here for just a moment? Are we okay with that? Are we okay with the idea that sometimes followers of Jesus get sick? Uh, and in that trial that there may be a reason, there may be something going on that God is doing, that it's not something random, that what we're going through is there to bring glory to God. Are we okay with that? But then Jesus does something strange, and verse 5 reaffirms that Jesus did love Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. But then in verse 6 we read, Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And you immediately find yourself asking the question, If Jesus loved this family, why did he not leave at once? I mean, wouldn't you do that? If you had just heard that someone you loved was, was sick? As you move through this passage, if you pay careful attention, you'll see Jesus give three reasons why he didn't go right away. The first one we already read, uh, we see that Jesus didn't go, it says, because he loved them. That's in verse five. He just said that. Uh, later in verse 15, he tells the disciples that he's glad he wasn't there for their sake, that they would believe in him. And then later on, when he is in front of the tomb of Lazarus, he, he says that it's because the people of Bethany, they would get this opportunity to believe that he is God's son. And I want you to notice all three of these reasons are not what Mary and Martha are asking. Can we just acknowledge in this moment that God's mind is infinitely beyond ours, that, that God is always at work, that he is doing thousands of things that we cannot see, that he is accomplishing things beyond our comprehension? Maybe through our circumstances, maybe even in what is going on in the world all around us. Maybe God is doing something, accomplishing things, bringing glory to his name in ways that we don't see. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And when I am suffering or I am anxious, I, I can believe, begin to believe in the moment that, that God is not for me, that this circumstance is somehow random. But this verse tells us everything that happens in a Christ follower's life has a purpose. I mean, just think about it. Look back on your life. How many of us gave our lives to Christ in a crisis? How many of us surrendered our lives more fully in a time or out of a time of suffering. If you were here, I would ask you to raise your hands and I am confident there would be hands raised all across this room. How often does God use crisis to accomplish a greater purpose? So Jesus tells these messengers that this illness of Lazarus will not lead to death, but it is for God's glory. And think about this. They would have taken that message back to Martha and Mary. They would have said, we found Jesus. And Jesus said, Lazarus isn't going to die. And so Mary and Martha in that moment are going to think our prayer has been answered. 
and they just knew that Jesus would be coming, that he would be coming soon, but he doesn't come. Verse 17 tells us when Jesus finally does come, Lazarus has been in the tomb for days. And when Jesus finally gets to Bethany, it's a full-blown funeral. The professional mourners are there. The friends are there. Everyone is there. There is no doubt that Lazarus is dead. And so we read in verse 20 that Martha hears Jesus is there and she goes out to meet him. And in verse 21, she says, Lord, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. It seems that she's lost hope. And I think that we should give her grace. Think about what she's been through in the last few days. Some of you have been there in that room as someone you love was dying. What was it like for Mary and Martha? They saw their brother get sick. We don't know what it was. Maybe he started to have a fever. Maybe there was a cough in his chest and that continued to grow deeper and deeper. Maybe he was struggling to breathe. Maybe it was something as simple as appendicitis, but there was no way to treat it back then. And maybe the appendix burst and poison flooded his system. And maybe the abdominal pain that he had just became excruciating. We, we don't know. But if you've been in that room, you know, seldom is death not ugly. These sisters watched their brother die, most likely in agony. I wonder if his, if his lungs filled with fluid. Did he begin to gurgle with each breath? Did, did they put cold washcloths on his forehead to cool the fever? And all this time, they keep looking out the window, wondering, is Jesus here yet? Because Jesus said this wouldn't lead to death. But then Jesus never comes and then Lazarus dies and he's gone and Jesus, he didn't show up. Martha is asking Jesus, where were you? Why didn't you come? And sometimes we ask God, if you had been there, this wouldn't have happened. Where were you? You see, when God doesn't do what we think he should do, it's painful, it's hard. And if we're honest, we sometimes struggle to trust. And maybe the reality right now is that this is where you are. With everything swirling around us, the threat of disease, the fear of death, all the anxiety, the uncertainty, maybe you're asking, where is God? I want to pick the story up again in verse 32, and I want you to see what happened just before Jesus wept. Here's what John writes for us. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And notice that Mary says the exact same thing Martha said. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And you might underline or circle deeply moved. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Now before Jesus wept, it says he was deeply moved. And that same expression pops up again a couple of verses uh, later. Drop down to verse 37. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more deeply moved, circle it again, came to the tomb. 
Now, Bible scholars tell us that this phrase, deeply moved, which is a translation of one word in Greek, uh, this doesn't really convey what this meant in the original Greek text. Deeply moved comes from a word that, that really means very angry or even outraged. In fact, this word in secular literature of the time was used to describe the snorting of a horse that was all worked out. Uh, Jesus, Jesus was quaking, shaking with rage. And you might hear that and you say, okay, I, I, I get sad, but why mad? Why is Jesus so indignant? Uh, let me try to summarize with a few broad brush strokes the, the Bible's storyline, which will help you understand. God created a perfect, beautiful, wonder-filled world. And you can read about this in the opening pages of the Bible. And then God placed a human couple in this paradise. He gave them everything they needed. He just gave them one word of instruction, just one rule about a tree that they were not to eat from. And it was a test. It was a test to see if they would really trust God, if they would really believe in their hearts that God wanted what was best for them. And of course, you know how the story goes. They chose to go their way instead of God's way. The Bible says that every human being who's ever lived, and that includes you and that includes me, ever since then, every human being has been doing the same thing. We go our way instead of God's way. And we do this with our actions. We do this with our words. We do it with our thoughts. And it happens all the time. It happens every day. And as a result, we are disconnected from God. The trouble with disconnecting from the giver and source of life is that the consequences are death. You disconnect from life and you die. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And we need to be reminded sometimes that death was never part of God's original creation design. Death is not what God wants for you. We have brought this on ourselves, beginning with the very first human. In Romans 5:12, the apostle Paul sums this up this way: Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. In other words, death came because everyone disconnected from the source of life. And so when Jesus, now follow this, when Jesus comes face to face with the death of his friend Lazarus, when Jesus witnesses the heart-wrenching agony that this death has caused Lazarus' loved ones, Jesus shook with anger. And Jesus wept as he thought, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus is thinking, I didn't create life to have it destroyed like this. What you're seeing here is the furious love of Jesus. One commentator writes that Jesus was like a military general who comes in with his army to liberate a country. And when they enter the country, they see burned out landscapes. They see people with missing limbs. They see children that are naked, that are starving. They see orphans. And the blood of this general boils at the carnage the enemy has left behind. Jesus is outraged at the effects of sin, which has led to suffering and death. Jesus has come into this world to reverse the curse, and he will defeat the, the enemy, which is death. He'll defeat that enemy through death. And as he sees death firsthand, he's outraged. 
death is his enemy. I don't know if you've ever walked out of a hospital and said to yourself, I hate cancer. If you have, you know something of this feeling. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And one day, it will be no more. Jesus hates the enemy, death. In no way, no way is death just a natural part of life. That, that brings us to the second insight from this expression of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. And I, I want to call it the offer of true life. You can write this down again if you're taking notes. Jesus offers us an alternative to death. But it requires a response from us. Let's go back to John 11 and read more of the story. We'll begin picking it up at verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead men, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? Verse 41. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. <laughs> I remember my dad telling me one time, half jokingly, that the reason Jesus calls Lazarus by name here as opposed to just shouting, come out, was that if he hadn't called Lazarus by name, then every dead person in the vicinity would have come out of the grave. Well, this was a surprising miracle. It was an astounding miracle. You might remember that Jesus had actually raised two people before. One was the daughter of a synagogue ruler named Jairus, one was the son of a widow in a small village called Nain. But this was different. This wasn't the same. In both of those previous cases, the, the person who had died had only died like hours earlier. Lazarus had died four days earlier. Uh, to quote the, the princess bride, Lazarus was not mostly dead. He was dead, dead. Jewish historians tell us that in Jesus' time, there was a popular belief that after a person died, the spirit would hang around the body for three days, like in hopes that the person would get resuscitated. But after three days, the spirit would give up, the spirit would leave because it was over. And that's what's behind verse 39. Look at it again. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead men, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. And I have to say, you gotta love Martha, right? I mean, she always says exactly what she thinks. Some of you know this. I, I particularly love the old King James Version translation of this. Martha says, Lord, he stinketh. In other words, my brother's body has begun to decompose already. And that made Martha and the others reluctant to believe that Jesus was able to do anything about it. I mean, they thought he could heal people on their way to death and maybe he could raise someone from the dead who had died recently, but someone who was dead, dead? What about you? Do you believe 
that Jesus can give life after death? I mean, think about it. Do you believe that Jesus can give you life after death? If you don't believe this, then you're really stuck with the terrible tyranny of death. Or maybe you're, you're counting on some other plan for life beyond the grave. Maybe you have no idea how it's going to happen. Maybe you just have sort of a vague hope. There are a lot of people that I've talked to. They just have a, a vague hope. And I would just say, if that's you, good luck. Because there is no other plan that has solid evidence to back it up. All other plans require blind faith. See, it's only with Jesus that we have historically accurate eyewitness accounts that say Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and then at a short time after this, Jesus himself walked out of his own tomb. The apostle Paul writes for us a a, a few years later that there were 500 people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life after the tomb, after the cross. And, And we are told in the scriptures that Jesus has the same power to do this for you and for me. And we believe this because Jesus has already proved that he, he can. Do you understand that's the very point of Easter? Easter means that Jesus can give you new life, true life, eternal life. But he doesn't do it for everyone. Look at what he says. I want you to go back to verses 25 and 26 again. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. In other words, they will physically die but death will become a doorway into eternal life. And then Jesus asks Martha, do you believe this? I want to point out something very important in Jesus' I am statement here. I don't want you to miss it. Jesus does not say I give resurrection and life. He he could have put it that way and that would have been true. He does give resurrection and life, but that's not how he puts it. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, if we want eternal life, it's not like some commodity that we acquire. It's, It's not like you can say, hey, hey, give me some of that eternal life. You see, eternal life, the Bible tells us, is a person. And that person is Jesus. Eternal life is only found in Jesus. Jesus offers us himself. If we want eternal life, we have to have Jesus. Do you remember what I said earlier? Uh, I want to explain why it has to be Jesus. We, We go our own way instead of God's way. We sin. We disconnect from the giver of life. And that's why we die. So this is the problem. What can we do about it? And the answer at the front end is this, absolutely nothing. There's nothing you can do about it. The penalty must be paid. But the good news is this, God loves us so much that he sent his son to take the penalty. Jesus came to earth and he lived a perfect life and then he laid down that perfect life, his life of infinite worth because he's the eternal son of God. He died the death you and I deserve to die. That's what he was doing on the cross. But he didn't stay dead. God the father raised the son from the dead on Easter. And that means, that means that he alone now 
has the power and authority to forgive your sins, the sins that will lead to your death. He alone has the power and the authority to give you new life, true life, eternal life, if you'll surrender your life to him. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And this life, eternal life, true life, is to be found only in him. You have to have Jesus. Do you have Jesus? Do you? Have you ever surrendered your life to Jesus as your savior, as your king, as the resurrection and the life? Have you ever believed in him? You see, apart from Jesus giving you life, there is no life to be had. Now, Jesus in this story, he calls Lazarus out of the tomb. And again, verse 44 says, the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to him, or said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, if you can imagine this, this had to be an amazing moment. And there must have been after this an amazing party. But interestingly enough, John doesn't describe it for us. We don't really know what happens. But I want to point out to you, this is not the ultimate resurrection story. Because Lazarus, he's going to die again. Tradition says he, he lived another 30 years. But he's going to die. He will die the last time we see Lazarus is in the next chapter in John 12. This is verses 10 and 11. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. You see, this tells us something even more about Jesus' love for us. This is amazing. After Lazarus was raised from the dead, the word travels quickly to Jerusalem. The leaders say, oh no, he just raised someone from the dead. I mean, we'd heard they did it up in Galilee, but now it's in our backyard and this place is gonna go crazy. We gotta kill that guy or the Romans are gonna take our country away from us. And this means something that Jesus was fully aware of. As Jesus approached Lazarus' tomb, he knew he understood fully that to cancel this funeral was to schedule his own funeral. He knew that. That the cost of raising Lazarus was that he was going to die. And friends, please hear me. Please see this. Please grasp this. This is the love of our Savior. The love of our Savior for us. This is Jesus, Jesus who loves us, Jesus, the resurrection and the life. You see, he proved that that was who he was at Calvary. He proved it at Easter. The ultimate resurrection story is Jesus' story. And I'm just telling you today, it is only in Jesus that you find truth. It is only in Jesus that you find life. It is only in Jesus that you find hope. See, when Jesus, when he came out of the tomb, death was defeated. Jesus defeated our greatest enemy. He had mastered life. He lived a perfect life. And in the resurrection, he mastered death. And that is the reason why we have hope, friends. That is the reason why we don't need to give in to despair, even in the face of the coronavirus, even in the face of death. See, the reality is this. We're all going to die someday. 
But when death comes for someone who believes that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, the grave is not the end. I read one time about a florist who mixed up a two orders on a real busy day, and one order was for a business's new opening, and the other was for a family who experienced a death. And the guy with the, the new business came in, and he was really ticked off. He said, the flowers you delivered to my business on opening day said, rest in peace. And the florist said, you think you're mad. You should have seen the people who just left. They had a funeral, and they got a bouquet that said, good luck in your new location. Anne Lamott, the author, writes, for the Christian, death is just a change of address. It's just a new location. And you today can know and live in that hope. Jesus, he's still asking people, do you believe this? Do you believe in me? Will you trust me? I wanna ask you that same question. Do you believe this? that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? And will you trust him? Will you trust him with your own life? If you've never done that, you can do that today. You can tell Jesus today, right now, wherever you are, Jesus, I want to confess my sin to you. I want to admit that I have disconnected from you. I've been living my life on my own. But now I want to know you, Jesus. I want to give you my life. I, I want to follow you, Jesus, the rest of my life. And I want to spend eternity with you, Jesus, on the other side of the grave. See, if you do that, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you face, not even death, because you're not on your own, not anymore. One of my favorite stories uh, was told years ago by a pastor named Bishop Ken Ulmer. He's the pastor of a, a great church in Los Angeles, a mostly African-American church. They, they worship in the forum where the, the Lakers used to play basketball. And this story was about two men who had gone to an art museum and they came on this painting. It was a painting of a chess match. And in this painting, one character looked like a man and, and on the other side of the table, the other character looked a lot like the devil. And the man was down to his last piece on the chessboard. The title of that painting was Checkmate. And Ken, as he tells the story, says one of the two men looking at this painting was an international chess champion. And something about this painting intrigued him. He began to study it. And he became so engrossed in looking at this painting that the other man grew impatient and, and asked what he was doing. And he said, you know, there's something about this painting that bothers me and I can't quite figure it out. I want to stay here for a while. You go on and, and you can look at some other things. And he kept looking at it. He kept studying it. And, and as he did, his head started nodding and his hands started moving. And when his friend came back, he said, we have to find the man who painted this, this painting. We have to tell him. Either he has to change the picture or he has to change the title. His friend said, what are you talking about? This man, international chess champion, said, well, it's titled Checkmate. But that's wrong because the king still has one more move. Now, when Ken told this story in a mostly African-American church at that line, there was lots of noise. It's real quiet in here right now because you're not here. But I'm sure you're making lots of noise in your home. 
just in case you're confused, this is the good part. This is the good news. The king still has one more move. The king still has one more move. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what what enemy the king's subjects face. It doesn't matter what Jesus' followers are facing right now. It may be the loss of a job and you don't know how you're going to make it. Your king still has one more move. It may be a relationship that is broken and it looks permanent, seemingly beyond repair. Your king still has one more move. He's always at work. It may be the economic collapse that seems to be coming or the coronavirus crisis or it may be cancer. It may be even that final evil, implacable enemy, death. It doesn't matter. Our king always has one more move. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I proved it when I raised Lazarus from the dead. I proved it forevermore when I walked out of that grave Easter Sunday. I always have one more move. And I don't know where you are right now. You may look at your life and all you can see is death. Everything seems to be dead, dead. It seems to be over. It's done. Checkmate. The king still has one more move. And friends, this is the hope of Easter This is the promise we live under. Our God never fails. Our God never leaves us. God is always with us and he is living and he is reigning and he will be living and reigning forevermore for eternity still to come. The king always has one more move. Would you bow your heads? Would you pray with me? Father, we want to thank you for the gift of life the gift of new life, Father, redeemed life, death-defying life, that life that has been purchased on a cross, sealed forever by the empty tomb. Father, we thank you for the power of Jesus Christ in this world and in our lives, and we are so grateful this morning as we celebrate Easter. We know, Father, that whatever enemies we face today, that you are going to help us. And so help us to trust you. Help us to keep walking with you, knowing that you will never leave us, that you are always with us, no matter what. We praise you. We thank you. And Lord, we worship you today. We pray all these things in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus the Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. And everybody says, amen. Amen. I want to thank you. for coming today, for joining us today. And it may be that you are here with us and there's something that, that God is calling you to, something you need to do, some way you need to respond. We want you to know that if you are, are wanting to surrender your life to Jesus today, or maybe you have some questions about Jesus, uh, we have our, our pastors and our elders that are going to be available to talk to you today. Uh, right after this service ends, Uh, They're going to be able to connect with you through Zoom technology. We're going to be available for the 30 minutes following each service. And if you would like to access this, please go to our website, southwinds.org. You can click on the banner at the top of the page where it says if you need help or prayer and you'll get instructions that'll take you uh, to this, this conversation. If you don't have the Zoom app, um, if this just doesn't work for you, um, or you aren't able to do this right now, please email us at hope at southwinds.org and we will get in touch 
because we are here to serve you. Again, I want to say thank you for coming. We serve a risen Lord, and isn't it great to be able to celebrate Easter in this way today in spite of everything that's going on? Our Lord is risen. He is alive. He lives, and he reigns forevermore. Amen. I hope you'll have a great week. I'll look forward to seeing you next Sunday. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.